Again, I feel so small. It's okay. At this time, I will dismiss the children to Children's Church. You see Miss Amy over here to my left, and I see some kids running out from the top. And uh, any kids that would like to go that way, they are welcome to do so. Uh, it is such a blessing to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I don't know, is anyone else warm in here? Man, I'm dying. Uh, I definitely wore one too many shirts this morning, but... It is a blessing to be able to worship with y'all this morning, just to be able to celebrate the Lord. I'm going to begin today with a question, and it's a question that probably many of us have heard before, but it's a very simple question. Who do you love? A question like that can be very easy to answer, or it can be very exhaustive to answer. From an easy standpoint, I know that we are supposed to love everybody, but the way we love may be different depending on who we're talking about. Immediately, we think of family. We think of a spouse or our parents or our siblings or children or even grandchildren. They tend to be the people who will know us longer than everybody else. And they tend to be the people who will also love us through all of our imperfections. Not that anyone in this room has any imperfections. My first thought is of a parent who unconditionally loves a difficult child. And believe it or not, there are some children that are difficult. No matter what that child does, it will not change the amount of love that is being extended to them. And later in life, we see that role often reversed as parents age and reach that point where they need extra care. I spoke recently with someone whose mother was one of the most supportive and caring people that you could ever meet. Yet as dementia has set in, she has become verbally abusive to her children and to many others, the people who are there caring for her on a regular basis. While that daughter grieves over those interactions, her love for her mother has not faded. But not everybody is so easy to love. In April of 1863, in Columbus, Mississippi, after decorating graves of her two sons who died representing their beloved Southland, an elderly woman walked to two mounds of dirt over in the corner of the cemetery to place memorial flowers there also. What are you doing, shouted her friends. Those are the graves of two Union soldiers. Softly, that compassionate mother said, I know. I also know that somewhere in the north, a mother or a young wife mourns for them as we do for ours. That loving deed set in motion our celebration, which has become known as Memorial Day. And what a great display of love that was. I know it's not Memorial Day, but what an incredible example of love that was. But the term love is so diverse in its meaning. In the Greek, there were a total of seven, seven different words that are translated as love, each of them with a different connotation. Three of those words are actually used in the New Testament. They include eros, a passionate sexual love typically intended to be between a husband and a wife. Phileo, a brotherly type of love. It's where we get the name for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love which isn't really all that much brotherly love as one who used to live there. 
And then you have agape love, which is an unconditional love without limit. And it makes sense that I might love you a little bit differently than I might love my wife or even my children. But it does not change the fact that I can still love you. And it would seem that love would be the central focus of much of what Jesus would teach. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we are told that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he did not break into an exhaustive list from the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Instead, he summarized the law into two statements. He said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. He then added that all of the laws are summed up in these two commandments. And in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus equates love with obedience. When he says, if you love me, you will obey what I have commanded you. Now, I share all of that to set up the reading for today's scripture. We're talking about the community of faith and what a community of faith ought to look like. And as we start today's reading, we're talking about a people who are identified by their love. Listen to John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17 for just a moment. It says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. To begin with, we're looking at Jesus' words. He is addressing his people and he is preparing them for what is to come. There would be many things that would divide them. There would be many things that they would disagree on. But there is one thing that ought to hold them together, and it is a love for one another. In case you didn't catch it, this passage is riddled with this call to love. But it begins with a reference to love that has already been shown to you and me. It actually said there, love each other as I have loved you. That is a past tense statement. I intentionally emphasize that last phrase, how has Jesus loved us? It's an interesting question because as Jesus is saying this, he has not yet given his life on the cross, but he knows what is to come. In fact, it seems quite logical that when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends, it is likely that Jesus had the cross on his mind. 
So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is that I am about to show you the greatest love ever by laying down his life so that you wouldn't have to. Just want to point out real quick, this is not a part of the message, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. The wage of sin has always been death. That means that every one of us who has committed sin, which as I look around the room, I'm pretty sure that includes all of us. All of us deserved death. And what Jesus Christ does is he becomes the sacrifice for our sins. He takes death upon himself. He's the only one who was without sin, which means he could have avoided death. But Jesus took death upon himself to make up for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for my sin. That's an incredible act of love. Greater love has no one than this. There's an author, his name is Albert Barnes, and he said this, no higher expression of love could be given. Life is the most valuable object we possess. And when a man is willing to lay that down for his friends or his country, it shows the utmost extent of love. Even this love for friends has been rarely witnessed. That is exactly what Jesus did. And that sacrifice was intended not just for those who have been a part of the church for forever, not just those who were faithful Jews. That was intended for all of humanity. It was God's gift of grace, him laying his, down his life so that our sins could be forgiven. And the end result is that we are no longer alienated from God by our sin. Instead, we are welcomed into his family. And that's why the word tells us that there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the word that is used repeatedly in this passage is friends. But very similar to the word love, they can actually have different meanings. The word friends also can carry different meanings. There are some friends that are much more like acquaintances, for example. There are other friends that we may not even really like all that much. I hate to admit that, but sometimes that is the case. And then there are other friends whom you can count on to be there if they need something. But then there are other friends whom you would gladly invite into your home. And I don't mean just into the living room. You know how when people come over to your house uh, for a visit, especially when you've got kids in the home, the first thing you do is to close off certain rooms of the house because you don't want to have everybody see the messy rooms, all the junk that's back there. By the way, just a side note, I think that so often this is what we do with our friends even from church. We make sure that everybody sees the good rooms in our lives that they see the best side and we do everything possible to hide the ugly parts. Obviously, I'm not just talking about the rooms in the house anymore. I'm talking about the rooms within our hearts. There's this fear that if the rest of the world knew the, these things about me, then they probably wouldn't like me very much. 
we tend to hide all the things that might cause us great shame. But there's a whole different level of friendship when you let people in to see the junk. Whether we're talking about your home or your heart, it should be clear that this kind of friendship is what is being portrayed in this scripture passage today. The kind of friendship that says, I don't care what everybody else sees. I'm going to reveal everything about me. Jesus says that as my friends, everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. That means I'm not holding anything back. I will say that it's not just Jesus who welcomes strangers in as family. In fact, we have multiple individuals throughout the scriptures. I'm just going to pick one in particular, the Apostle Paul. He is dealing with two particular individuals. One is recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, and the other one is in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He's addressing these two individuals who, whom he has loved and served alongside. But listen to how he addresses them. First, in 1 Timothy 1-2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And then he goes on to wish him peace and grace. And to Titus, he says, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Again, he goes on to wish him peace and grace from the Lord. But what I want you to see is that these are more than just his followers, these are more than just people who work under him. They are more than his acquaintances. To Paul, they have become like family. And that is because they are all beneficiaries of the same grace, the same sacrifice. As Jesus becomes our sacrifice, he invites all of us into his family. And as such we now share an incredible common bond. In fact, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17, as we see a more personal statement, not just as friends, but even as family. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, we are not just friends we are now identified as being adopted into the family of God. And the evidence or the confirmation of this adoption is found in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by this is that all those who have been adopted into the family of God, the offer of the Spirit is there for them. Now the question that arises for me is why would we be given the Spirit of God? Is this simply an act of generosity because God loves us? In a manner, it probably is that. 
God has an incredible love for his people and he desires that we know him. And the reality is the presence of the spirit in us will actually teach us about how much God loves us. So yeah, he, he gave us the spirit in many ways because he wants us to know how much he loves us. But there's so much more to this. Actually, let me draw your attention to the last verse that I read for a moment. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I imagine that all of us are at least somewhat grateful to know that we've been added to the family will. We are now heirs of the Father. And in an odd way, we have become equals to Jesus. Now, don't jump on me as a heretic for a moment. Recognize that I do not consider equality with God something to be grasped, just as Jesus even didn't consider equality with the Father something to be grasped. I get it. We're not truly an equal, but maybe we are. The reality is Jesus is the only one without sin, and that's not us. He's the only one who didn't need a Savior. That is not us. But as heirs of the Father, we are now brothers and sisters with Jesus himself. We are now princes and princesses within the royal family. You're not an extra. You're not somebody who's watching on the outside to see something incredible on the inside. I've shared with you before, but we took a mission trip to uh, Haiti many years ago, and the only way to get to church that Sunday morning was by boat. It was a very impoverished town. They did not have the resources that we look at, and we just assume that they're normal. There were people, literally, we're passing these houses as we walk up from the water's edge to the church, and their homes are two sticks with a tarp that's draped over the back of it. It was incredibly impoverished. At the end of the service... They wanted to feed us, and I will tell you, they made the best conch soup I've ever had in my life, but we were told ahead of time, eat everything you are given. Do not ask for seconds, and the reason was because everybody else in the town would eat what was left over after we were done, so if you didn't eat it, you were basically insulting them. But if you did eat it and you wanted more and more, everything you ate was something they would not be allowed to eat. Remember, as incredibly impoverished, this was a sacrifice. They actually fed us in a house, a real house with walls and windows and doors and a roof. It was the biggest house in the town. Everyone in the town participated. And what they did to participate, everybody brought a plate. So that when we ate, it was obviously not a matching set. We all ate off the plates that were theirs. And afterwards, they would come back and get their own. But as we ate, it felt incredibly awkward. Because as you look at the windows and the doors, there were all these people, Haitians, who were sitting there watching, eagerly wanting to see if we liked their food. In many ways... I think that some of us in Christ have almost assumed that we are on the outside looking in and just enjoying the show, much as in many ways that's what it felt like that day. But the truth is, we are not on the outside. God has invited us in to eat with him, to be a part of this celebration, to be able to rejoice together. We are now a part of the royal family. Have you ever thought of yourself as being unimportant? 
or insignificant, or perhaps as some sort of lost cause. Maybe you've done some things that seem unforgivable. Well, apparently God sees you in a different light. He wants you to be a part of the family. He loves you. He chose you. And he has invited you into his ever-loving family. But now that you're a part of the family, your common bond is not just about adoption. It is about a joint calling. I ask the question, why would we be given the Spirit of God? One of the answers to that question is because God is calling us to something bigger than ourselves. He is calling us to join him in his work. The word that he uses in our passage is his sufferings. The term suffering typically refers to endurance of pain, and certainly that would fit with Jesus. He would suffer much for the sake of humanity, and that would obviously fit with some of what Jesus would even call his disciples to do. For example, at one point, he'll call them to take up your cross and follow me. The original audience would have immediately recognized the symbol of the cross. Now, we think of the cross as a beautiful thing. Typically, we'll have it on our necks or on a wall. We've got it on the wall right behind us here. Honestly, this is rougher than what you normally would see if you've got a cross. Usually, it's something beautiful, something that is ornate and attractive. But the cross to them was certainly not. It was a symbol of death, a symbol of punishment, usually reserved for the worst of criminals, If you did something horrible, you had to pay a price. And it was not unusual to walk through the countryside and to see crosses that were up there, typically with people still hanging on those crosses. So again, I go back to what Jesus called those disciples to do. If you will follow me, take up your cross. What's he talking about? It's a symbol of suffering. And in today's passage... We are being called to share in his sufferings. Now, before I dig too deep into this, let me also say that the term suffering can also carry with it simply the meaning of experience. Remember back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, when the disciples thought that they were doing what was right, they were trying to keep the children from from bothering this very busy Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them by saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me. He's not saying that make them deal with me. Make them have to suffer because they're with me. He's saying let them come. Let them have this experience, this opportunity. Now, I will say that the whole of Jesus' life was suffering. I know that there were also some really great moments in Jesus' life. But the reason he came to earth was to suffer. He came to become the sacrifice for the sins of all of humanity. And everything that took place leading up to the cross was just that. It was intended to lead him to the cross. That means when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was preparing for his suffering. When Jesus proclaimed hope, 
and life and peace to his audience. He was preparing for his suffering. When Jesus developed intimate relationships with his disciples, he was preparing for his suffering. And when Jesus simply loved on other people, often bringing healing and hope, he was preparing for his suffering. And now we are called into his suffering. By the way, if, you, if you're asking yourself, how were all of those things in preparation for his suffering? Think about it. The very same people whom Jesus loved and poured into would be the ones who would betray him. Do you think that hurt? Do you think there were moments where Jesus thought to himself, I don't want to pour into that guy? Probably not. Because it's just who he was. He loved them in spite of it. But everything he did led to the cross. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking of the coming judgment of God. And in it, he talks about those who will stand before him on the last day. I won't read the entire passage to you, but I do want to read a few verses beginning in verse 31. Again, I'm in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The point of me sharing this is simple. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. In other words, the Lord still has an incredible love for humanity. Now, as his children, he expects us to go about doing our Father's business. He expects us to, he expects us to love on the broken in our world. He expects us to be there for them in their darkest days. And as we do, we literally will become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. This past week, I had an interaction with a young man, a very nice young man. And as we talked, he shared about the brokenness in his life. He was adopted at a very young age, and God put him into a great family. And about two years ago, his brother decided to take his own life. Two years down the road, that young man is still carrying incredible baggage from his brother that was less than a year apart from him. All I could do was sit there and grieve with him. But did you know that that is a part of what our world longs for? Someone who will grieve alongside them and not tell them just to get over it, but will love them in spite of the fact that it may not be pleasant. I got to pray with him 
and to simply ask that God would comfort him, that the Spirit of God would be present in his life. And all I can tell you, I don't know what decisions that young man will make moving forward, but all I can tell you is that young man needed to see Jesus that day. He's probably needed it for a long time. Who will be the one to show individuals like that Jesus? It ought to be everyone in this room. God has allowed us the privilege of bringing hope to people who are broken. So why did he give you that spirit? Maybe one reason is because the kind of love that we're being called to display is not something that always comes naturally. But when an individual is filled with the Holy Spirit, love becomes a natural byproduct. I asked you earlier about who you love. And I confess that there are some people who are much easier to love than others. But through the presence of the Holy Spirit, love will become natural. I think of the disciples, just to give you an example of this. Consider three of the disciples for a moment. Which one would be easiest to love? Which would be the hardest to love? I'll give you three. John, Peter, and Judas. Now, y'all know these guys already, and y'all are already thinking, I know which one it is. John was the only one, the only disciple to have been recorded as being present at the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, he is often referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I kind of get that. Although it should also be noted that such a reference is only made in the Gospel of John. Which simply means that John's the one who said it. And what it really means is John felt loved by Jesus. But he was faithful. And therefore you could look at that and say he was easy to love. Then you have Peter. He's probably the most flamboyant among the disciples. He always had something to say and seemed to view himself as being more faithful and better than all of the others. No doubt that Jesus saw incredible potential in Peter, even declaring that on Peter, his name literally meaning rock, on this rock I will build my church. But Peter would be a failure. He would cowardly deny even knowing Christ on the night of Jesus' arrest. Sure, Peter would be a little harder to love than John. Or consider Judas. Y'all are already thinking, yeah, I know, he's the hard one. Of course, he's known as the betrayer, the one who would turn Jesus over to, to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. But he was also in charge of the money. And apparently, according to some of the disciples, he had a habit of skimming off the top for himself. It doesn't take much to see that he is going to be harder to love than both Peter and John. Yet Jesus chose Judas. Jesus shared countless meals with Judas. He taught him. He poured into him. And even at the Last Supper, knowing that the betrayal was about to take place, John chapter 13 tells us that Jesus got down on his hands and knees and he washed the feet of every disciple, including Judas. 
Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, but, but that was Jesus. I can't love like that. And in a manner, I will agree with that sentiment. Except, I need you to remember that the Lord has promised to give his Holy Spirit to all those who will share in his sufferings. Which means, you may not be able to offer that love on your own. But by the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can love like that. Maybe the reason that we are given the Spirit is so that we will be able to love in a supernatural manner, even loving those who seem to be unlovable. Maybe it's someone who smells bad. Maybe it's someone who has a bad attitude. Maybe it's someone who has done you wrong in some way or fashion. I want you to know that with the Spirit's help, you will have everything you need to love them just as Christ loves them. I want to take a moment. Obviously, we're talking this uh, month. We've been looking at uh, what it is to be a church, a community of faith that truly honors God. It seems like all of this today has been about the individual. And remember also that the church is made up of individuals, of people. We are the church. It's not this building. It's the people in this room. But I would suggest to you that at times the church has not been the community of faith that displays that kind of love the way it should. I hate to admit it, but too often that has been this church. There have been too many times that we've chosen to love inwardly and not externally. And don't get me wrong, we need to love people inside the church. We have a responsibility to love those inside the church, to take care of those who are part of the body of Christ. But if we are to love like Jesus loved, then we also must be willing to love those outside the church. And that means getting involved in the community. That means finding out what the needs are and then finding a way to meet those needs. It means spending money and not always with the idea that we need to get something back for our investment. At times, it will mean blessing the local community or it might mean taking a team to Costa Rica just to love on people and meet needs there. That's why we do what we do. If we are to be the body of Christ, we must love not just those who are in our inner circle, but all those whom God will place across our path. And finally, I want you to see today that we not only benefit from one common sacrifice, we not only share a common bond and a common calling as we are sent to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, but we also share in a common blessing. And that blessing is both for today and for tomorrow. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6. Listen to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I want you to know that the blessing of God is not merely something that awaits us after we die. The blessing of God is available to us here today. In fact, back to the original passage from John 15 this morning. Listen again to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. If you are going to be filled with the Spirit of God, you ought to be out there producing fruit. He is giving you that spirit to go out and make a difference in the world. And I'll tell you the truth, the greatest joy I've ever experienced has been when I know that my life is making a difference for Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things that I would love to be able to do. There are a lot of things I'd love to be able to have. But none of those come close to the joy that I receive in knowing that I am doing what God has called me to do. I'm not talking about after I die. I'm talking about right now. Remember the first time I led a young man to Christ? We were at an altar at a youth camp in Virginia, and I led this young man to Christ, and this guy is confessing, and he's asking the Lord to forgive him of his sins. He, at first, he's just repeating after me, and then he kind of takes over, and he begins to pray and to confess things that I didn't know anything about, but as he is confessing those sins, all of a sudden, this incredible joy came over me, and had he opened his eyes, he would have thought I was weird, because I've got both hands raised in celebration, because this was the greatest thing that I had ever been a part of, was seeing someone else find Jesus Christ. I want you to know that the blessing of God is not something that just awaits you down there. There'll come a day where you will see that blessing after this life is over. There is a life that we look forward to. Actually, we've got a series coming up in uh, about two months that's going to deal with that. But I want you to know today that the blessing of God is available to you now. If you will allow the Lord to be the Lord of your life and the Spirit to actually guide you. You can change this world, and you will never look back with regret. If you would bow your heads with me, Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for you, for who you are, for the incredible blessings that you have given to us. We've talked about it this morning. We've talked about the, the forgiveness of sins, the reason for your sacrifice, and we are so grateful today to know that you loved us too much to allow us to remain in our sin, but rather you made a way that all of us could be redeemed. If there be one here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts, that right now you would convict of sin and that you would cause them to cry out to you, to seek that forgiveness and to find that grace. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. But I pray also for those who have been a part of the body of Christ for a long time. I pray that you would make us your hands and feet. Make us a people that genuinely love the way you have called us to love and you have even enabled us to love by sending your spirit. Lord, help us to reach out to those who seem unlovable. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to bring hope to broken people. And I pray that you would produce incredible fruit. We prayed for that for the mission trip that's coming up and we do pray that there would be fruit, that there would be lives that would be changed. But this is not just in Costa Rica. 
Lord, I pray that every individual in this room would become your instrument to bring love and hope and peace and forgiveness of sins to this world around us. I pray that the community would know that there is a hope and it's only found in you. Allow us to be your instruments. And then as we do, Lord, fill us with an incredible joy that cannot be quenched by anything this world throws at us. Lord, help us to just draw near to you and to sense your presence. We'll give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a blessing to have each of you with us this morning. I do encourage you real quick, just as you come back next week, I encourage you to come back next week. Sometimes, I mentioned it last week, but when the pastor goes out of town and I'm going to be on a mission trip to Costa Rica, sometimes people just don't come to church. Well, the pastor's not there. I'm not coming either. I'm telling you, the guy who's going to share is a guy named Heath Mulliken next Sunday, and Heath is an incredible man of God. He actually is someone who worked with me in Pennsylvania, uh, but he also is the one who recommended me to the district superintendent for this position as the pastor. And my plan is to retire here, so I am very grateful for Pastor Heath. Uh, that being said, you will not be disappointed if you're able to come next week. I hope that you'll be able to join us. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.